Once again, this episode is brought to you by Revelation Records. When I say you say Talking Revelation Records, folks. Established in 1987, Rev are the true independent hardcore specialists. Whether it's the earlier classics from Gorilla Biscuits, Judge, Youth of Today, Bold, Inside Out, Shelter, and others, or the 90s bangers from Texas is the Reason, Far Side, Into Another, Quicksand, and so many more, Rev has covered it. Go to revelationrecords.com and start today. Go to Rev HQ for a deeper dive into all things punk and hardcore and beyond. Rev HQ carries releases from labels such as Dark Ops, Bridge Nine, Equal Vision, Deathwish, and more. Do you wear clothes? Rev has it. Make a change? We hear you. New website in the works. Stay tuned. And as always, thank you for listening to Sandpaper Lullaby. just like a responsibility for anyone that has like love for what they do to help spread the authenticity or the integrity of, of how it's being done you know so that's how people stay kind of grounded in in the integrity of something that has like a pretty rich history in this country yeah. That was Robert Ryan, our guest this week on Sandpaper Lullaby. I first met Robert, or as I know him, Binky, in the New Jersey hardcore punk scene we were both a part of in the late 80s and early 90s. Since then, he has become one of the world's foremost tattoo artists, specializing in a style that combines influences from both American tradition and the Eastern philosophy that he found as a teen. I recently met up with Ryan in Asbury Park, New Jersey, where he's the co-owner of Electric Tattoo to talk about the hardcore scene we grew up in and how it helped him find the spirituality which inspires his art in the present day. episodes that we have you know I'm always trying to like pinpoint the mo- like you know these are people that I know so I'm trying to pinpoint the moment of like where I got to know them and I can't really like put a, a I can't nail down like a specific place or anything that we met or knew each other it was always like just around <laughs> yeah like at shows peripherally yeah, knowing exactly. each other yeah. we like yeah. we definitely attended a lot of the same shows yeah like I would see you at City Gardens probably more often than other places because mm-hmm. you live close to there, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I remember you as being yeah, my like, worked there, so it was yeah. Easy, yeah. I kind of remember you being like a a regular at City Gardens, yeah. where I didn't get out there as much, living like mm-hmm. uh, maybe about an hour from mm-hmm. there, or yeah. maybe forty five minutes. So it was actually easier for me to get to the city, but I would see you there as well. Yeah. Again, going back in my head, you know, the one thing I connect you to is you're one of the first guys. I remember who connected with um, like Krishna consciousness or mm-hmm. Hare Krishna religion. That was 
how I rem that's sort of my first memory of you. So I'm, you know, I'm just curious, like, what resonated with you about it? First, how, how did you find out about it, and then what about it was, what was yeah, resonated or was like welcoming to you about it? So um, I think initially. I was really drawn to like Eastern philosophy through martial arts. I, I was in uh, judo as a kid and my judo instructor was like very serious about his lineage in judo, mm -hmm. like to test as a belt, you would have like when you were getting the next belt, the testing wasn't always just physical. You would have to know like who his teacher was and who he taught and all these. So I started learning about these like these weird kind of esoteric lineages within the world of martial arts. So I was always kind of like obsessed with this thing because it was just seemed like really cool. There's like this oral tradition and there was like a lot of like information being shared, like kind of like almost occult. We're only about a mile of heat, at least partially washed the oil. Enough land focuses primarily on The seeds of Krishna consciousness were first planted in the underground by New York hardcore titans, the Cro-Mags. But by the end of the 80s, people like Ray Capo, Uthididae, and Victor Cara from Inside Out were also extolling the virtues of the philosophy and gaining the interest of kids like Rob. You know what I mean? Like there was no books about it and like we only knew about his teacher from, you know, like through him and then his teacher's teacher. So then um, with like Eastern philosophy, like Krishna consciousness and stuff like that, they're very like, they're really strong in like the preservation of what their Sampradaya they call it, which is like the lineage of their teachers and their gurus. So um, when I, initially was introduced to it, I read an article in Thrasher magazine, a skateboarding magazine about the, by the Cro-Mags. Mm -hmm. It was about the Cro-Mags and they're talking about the Kali Yuga and I was like, it was super colorful, you know, like the wording that those guys were using and like, it was definitely my favorite hardcore record, Age of Quarrel, and I had no idea that there was a connection between Krishna consciousness and them until I read that article. I just thought they just had like really far out lyrics at the time. And then it started to make sense. So I started looking into it. And then at the same time of reading that stuff, I, uh, I had met a Krishna devotee on the boardwalk in Point Pleasant. And uh, he had taught me the mantra, of the Hare Krishna mantra. So it was like all these things kind of lined up at the same time. And then, of course, like Raghunath starting Shelter. Mm -hmm. You know, I was, I was super into Youth of Today. But like all that stuff kind of happened simultaneously, I felt like. It maybe happened over the course of like a nine months where all of a sudden I'm like hanging out at a Hare Krishna temple, you know, mm -hmm. which wasn't what I intended to do. The Cro-Mags, the thing that was kind of crazy about that was like, you would see them and then you would read an article in Thrasher and they would talk about Christian, Harry Christian, but be a part of that. Like, it was what made it interesting. There was like a dichotomy there. Yeah. Whereas like, with Shelter, it was 
there. Like you know, yeah, the definitely and everything. So like, I think that was the difference between the two. Is like one was definitely, I don't know, I don't want to say punker, but it was definitely a little bit more, uh, more grittier. Grittier, yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah, grittier, yeah. and like not what you expected. Yeah. Whereas with shelter, it was like, oh, this is whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The the shelter guys were definitely more into like the monastic yeah. version of it, where like the Chromex guys, it was just like kind of this belief system that they were kind of working with, but then also going about their crazy lives too in the, in the Lower East Side. kind of got out of going to shows for a while because they started getting really violent and uh i remember i was with the shelter guys at a show at the in pennsylvania the place the unisound yeah remember the place so yeah everybody's friends there yeah well that that night that of the show i'm I'm about to speak of no one was friends like yeah it was like fucking seriously like i thought i really thought we were gonna all die you know it was like a huge fight some skinheads showed up and really challenging Ray and I was like man this I just can't hang with this scene Mm. so I stopped going to shows but I I still remained like into the philosophy and kind of followed it for a few more years and uh you know it became less Krishna core and more of like Krishna consciousness in my life you know For most who found Krishna through hardcore, it seems the spiritual practices lasted longer than their musical taste. Robert is no exception to this rule and has gained strength in spiritual teaching year after year. Yeah, I spent a lot of time at the temples and like uh, with the association of a lot of other devotees, but I never like shaved up, you know, (laughs) like, you know what I mean? Like I was always kind of on the periphery kind of thing. And then probably like 15 years later, I met my teacher Mm -hmm. who who I study with now. And that was kind of like the primer for what my meditation practice is now, you know, and like Mm -hmm. my... uh, you know, my, my belief system and my practice and my sadhana that I practice now mm-hmm. with Krishna consciousness kind of was like the, the gateway to that. Like many of us who felt the need to move on from the hardcore scene at a certain point in the 90s, Binky was looking for new influences to expand his consciousness. When he began experimenting with hallucinogenic drugs, he not only found the key to get him closer to Krishna, but also inspire his art. Well, I, 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 
So was there some switch over there where you started to, you know, do like psychedelics or Yeah. And like how did that was that like a was the Christian thing sort of a diving point from that? Yeah, or? yeah. Well definitely like opened me up to a lot more It's funny because they're very, very orthodox, mm -hmm. you know, and it's like it's super straight edge. It's like straight edge on steroids, yeah. you know, <laughs> like um, they're, they're they're very specific about their regulative principles that they mm -hmm. follow. So I was practicing that and I was like super staunch, you know, wasn't eating meat, not having illicit sex. Mm -hmm. And then I, I had a girlfriend who, uh, you know, she was also a Krishna devotee as well, and we thought like, oh, this is going to be great. You know, mm -hmm. we'll 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 be able to be young and in love, but be able to keep our practice. And like that lasted for like four weeks, and then you know we started sleeping together, and mm -hmm. you know, and then I just at the time I was like, fuck, man, I was like 16 or 17, so like I was just like crazy teenager and wanted just to like party and stuff. So. Um, I started, you know, obviously getting more into listening to a lot more like dub reggae and mm -hmm. that brought more like marijuana into my life yeah. and then started tripping on LSD and mushrooms and stuff like that. But the whole time I always had this like real like love for the Eastern way of doing things and all the deities and the icons and mm -hmm. when you look at a lot of those images of like the deities with the multiple heads and the multiple arms and all these different kind of like esoteric symbolism, I think that they are born from a psychedelic thought, you know, yeah. or with, you know, I'm finding out more and more now in my life that they were. The, the, the Rishis who are the ones who give the, you know, basically their revelations of, you know, they were the ones that were meditating for in the in the deepest reaches of the jungles in India, and uh, they were like the ones that were kind of bringing back to people like their visions of God, mm -hmm. and in a lot of those traditions, they were using they were drinking soma, mm -hmm. and the soma they they say that the Brahmins lost the recipe for, you know, and it was like on purpose because people started abusing it, but um, you know it was a psychedelic plant, and I think. Personally, I think it was ayahuasca, mm -hmm. you know, or Hyoma, which was in the uh, Middle East. And every kind of indigenous culture has a version of a, a plant that they use to connect to a higher divine being. And uh, I think, you know, Soma was the, the Vedic one. And in, in the jungles in South America, it was ayahuasca. Mm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah, I guess that's a, a good place like where I started getting into like a little bit more experimental music, starting to listen to more kraut rock and like more of like the deeper psychedelic grooves from the 60s. And that's like when we started doing Lord Sterling, uh, you know, it started as more like just like kind of discord worship, like mm -hmm. bands like Lungfish and Circus Lupus and stuff like that. And then as we started taking more LSD and uh, 
and like getting a little bit further out that's when we started getting more you know like more like a stoner rock for mm -hmm. lack of a better word mm -hmm. or like psychedelic punk you know and I like, uh, got like heavy in, it became like more Stooges and MC5 worship, mm -hmm. you know. like in New Jersey on the Jersey Shore in the late 90s early 2000s was like a pretty strong scene of like you know like bands like Monster Magnet and um, Atomic Bitch Wax yeah. and like a lot of the the Jersey stoner bands so there was there was like a scene for it you know and like uh, we would play like I'm our Lord Sterling's first show. I played on LSD. Sung from a harbor of your heart. These are your family portraits. It's the rings around your eyes. It's the morning and mirrors. It's corrective sun. It's singing secretly. Now this evening is no longer craving a cat-sized voice. stage which was a terrible idea yeah. you know but uh yeah. you know we were we we're getting pretty far out and people were people were into it you know and there was like a there was definitely like bands coming through like touring bands there was a lot of like heavier bands happening at like the brighton bar and the fast lane so there was a scene for it people that maybe knew me from the hardcore world maybe were a little freaked out by it but i feel like a lot of people were kind of transitioning into like more like punk or like heavier punk yeah, or yeah. you know heavier like rock music That's at that right. time yeah. You know, like I was talking, it was funny. Uh, I had an Uber driver the other night and we, he knew him and he had worked at uh, one of the other clubs in the area. And we were like kind of laughing, like, you know, he was right. You know, the things that we like laughed at him about, like all these kind of conspiracies about how like these clubs were going to take over. And then, you know, next thing you know, there's like kids selling tickets for shows, which mm -hmm. he was always against. Just like all these things, like the guy was like a true fucking communist, man. Like he like he, he really was. He he was for the people yeah. and he lived or he, you know, he's still alive. He's not doing so well now. He's, he's sick. But um he he definitely suffered for his art, you yeah. know, and like, and I love that about him, you know, and he, he was just like an anti-hero, yeah. and, and like, I as crazy as he was and how difficult he was to deal with at times and like the arguments I had with him and he, I really, he was really like a huge inspiration to me and I still like, like look up to him. Okay, for the uninitiated, we will back up and explain Jack Jacko Monahan. Jacko was a member of such seminal Jersey Shorecore bands as Fatal Rage and Dirge, and was a longtime booking agent for Asbury Park nightclub, The Brighton Bar. For years, 
Monahan was a proponent for local music with no interest in any monetary gain. Although he has been out of commission for the past few years due to health reasons, he remains an unsung yet crucial cog in the development of New Jersey's underground. Uh, yeah, Jack Monahan was like a, is a, he was a, the singer for a band called Fatal Rage, who yeah. were a, a really and great dirge, right? and dirge, yeah. Dirge, yeah. yeah. So the, New Jersey hardcore bands, yeah, that were on yeah. Mother Records, which yeah. was like this whole other kind of like far out weird scene <laughs> of, whole, yeah, of music. A whole other podcast episode, yeah. yeah, but some some like really obscure weird New Jersey punk, yeah. And uh, he was a booking agent at the. Brighton Bar for over 30 years yeah. and uh, every single band that played there got paid what they were deserved mm-hmm. you know if they brought five people they got paid 25 bucks you know yeah. if they brought 100 people they got paid 500 bucks you know or 400 bucks like and uh, you know but if you ever went and played another club he'd be angry at you you know yeah. so you get down here I would get stuck in this like rotation of playing the Brighton every three weeks which was like a death wish you know yeah. you would never play anywhere else and you know you get offered these great shows when bands would come through and i couldn't play because i was playing the brighton on a tuesday night to two people you know <laughs> yeah. um but yeah he he was just like this he was a diehard punk you know and like ran it in a punk way and like was at making flyers at kinko's hours before the shows every night you know like and really gave his all to to like he saw art in booking shows, which not many people see anymore. You yeah. know, it wasn't a business to him. It was like a, mo- a movement and yeah. it was like his expression. A foray into stoner rock at the Brighton Bar wouldn't be Rob's last attempt at finding meaning within the concept of sound. The Eastern influence imparted on him from Krishna consciousness quickly drew him back to a more free-flowing form of musical expression with his latest project, American Cloud Songs. It started with like my first home recording mm-hmm. projects, you know, stuff that I was making um, when I was still in Lord Sterling. And then it kind of like after we had broke up, I started recording some of my own music and someone had played Ryan from the label um, a demo. And he was like, yeah, I'll put it out. So I got together with like I had already had been playing with Daniel Carter. So I got together with him and Nathan Bell, who was in Human Bell and Lungfish, and a few other friends of mine, my friend John Francis and uh, another friend of mine, uh, Dylan. And we uh, just kind of like booked some time and recorded a bunch of songs. And I, w- I really wanted to work with Alop again, mm-hmm. who had done a, a bunch of Lord Sterling recordings. And uh, I liked what he, where he was going with the group he was doing, Dialect. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, so I wanted to record with him. So it was kind of like all those things were like pointing to this project. So 
uh, I recorded that record and I think it was about seven years ago now and uh, I haven't done much with that since I've played with uh, those guys in other outfits one was called Out Like Lambs with Neil O'Brien lately I've been working with this group called Mishra Bhakti Kirtan Sangha which is like a kirtan mm. band of like traditional Indian bhajans mm. and that, that was the last two records I made that, that was like probably some of the most gratifying music I ever made because it was like the first time I had ever gotten a chance to really record what I consider to be uh, devotional music, mm. you know. familiar with Rob from his tattooing are probably saying right now, hey, when are we getting to the ink? Yes. Music wasn't the only medium Krishna and LSD helped fuel for Robert. The combo meal of his spirituality, DIY upbringing, and psych-influenced imagery found a home in a new talent, tattooing. So my bandmate, Mike Schweiger, yeah. he was tattooing, like, still in the early hardcore days, like 1988, he started tattooing. And uh, he, like, went to art school and got, made it through, like, one semester of college and started tattooing, mm-hmm. quit school, started tattooing, came back home. I started as his assistant in his first shop. And then he taught me the tattoo maybe within the next couple of years. Mm-hmm. So it was me, him, and Tom Yak, who played in Dead Guy. So we always had this like kind of connection with the, the music scene in this area and tattooing. And tattooing kind of facilitated us to be able to play in bands and still have a living. And mm-hmm. um, So were you self-taught with all like your art? Like yeah, my art was self-taught, mm-hmm. 100%. I, I made like little bits of art in high school, but then I learned more about uh, creating art in a tattoo shop than I ever did any kind of academically. I first started like investigating uh, Krishna consciousness. There was a woman that lived at the Brooklyn Temple. And her name was Jadarani. And she was the one that actually painted the Best Wishes album cover. Oh, wow. And she was like accessible, you know, you could, she was teaching. Um, I took a Bhagavad Gita class with her mm-hmm. and she was showing us paintings that she was working on. And she was like very inspirational to me. I never took any art classes with her. I took philosophy mm-hmm. uh, classes with her, but she was a really good teacher in that respect as well. But seeing like the stuff she was making, I was like, man, one day I would love to be able to paint this kind of stuff. But it was just like kind of out of my realm, mm-hmm. you know. And then uh, 
as I kind of developed my painting a little bit deeper and I was like, well, I'm never going to be able to paint like she does because she was just this like super accomplished, amazing oil painter. But I was like, I figured out a way where I could, uh, you know, mend or like kind of weave the American traditional look, which I was learning in my application of tattooing to this like Eastern kind of uh, deity, uh, Vedic deity kind of thing. So it's something that I, I worked pretty hard to develop and like, I wasn't the first person to do it, but it's, it's definitely like uh, what I became known for. wave of tattoo enthusiasts responded to the intertwining of Binky's Eastern influence art style and his DIY ethics, and now both him and his tattoo shop serve as an example of how passion and drive will always result in the greatest art. It's still me, Mike, and Tom. Yeah. We worked for a guy named Gene who was a pretty notorious biker from this area, mm. and uh, he passed away and we went out on our own and opened Electric Tattoo about 12 years ago. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, it's still the same, same group, yeah. us three as the owners, and we have a few people that work for us. Yeah. And it seems like it's, it's going well. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a great shop. Yeah. And like, uh, you know, you what, know, what do you think it is that just keeps it, keeps it going? I think it's our, our um, the same thing that I talked about earlier with like the, the respect for the lineage, you know, like we're all we're all very uh, uh, aware that of the people that came before us, and we kind of try to nurture that still with like the changing times in tattooing. Yeah. So it's like uh, just like any kind of good rock and roll band, you know, yeah. it's like you respect your influences, but you kind of have to move on or adapt or make something new or kind of add to that, you know, and not be stuck in this like. Because a lot of there's a lot of the stuff like when we talk about like the traditional American look, which is like what the, that shop is known for. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of like retro kind of like um, I don't know, kind of masquerade like, like a bowling shirt. Yeah, yeah, side. yeah, like that that kind of thing, or like the way these like barbers are like yeah, yeah, yeah. look like they're from the 20s yeah, with like yeah. straight razors and yeah. you know, and it's not about it's that kitchen, at all. Yeah. yeah, it's not kitsch. We're we're yeah. like into like the root of it which is like the strength of these images and like how like how beautiful they can be but also how raw primal and energetic these designs can be and like getting like to the core of that yeah. you know kind of like how blues music is you know it's like the difference between robert johnson and stevie ray vaughn yeah you yeah. know well that's the thing and not to knock stevie ray yeah. vaughn he's great but yeah i know, you know. So what, I mean, this is your day-to-day -day is is doing tattooing, like what is, is, you know, it seems like whereas something like 10 years ago, maybe ta ta tattoos were uh, maybe a niche thing, maybe? It was more and fringe, now, yeah, definitely, yeah. it's just like... It's a thing, you know, yeah, like... like you got mothers getting tattoos and yeah, stuff like that. Yeah, which is, you know, it was, it had been growing exponentially mm -hmm. from the time I had started. I kind of caught that wave of like when 
tattooing started becoming popular, like, you know, when, when tribal became popular mm -hmm. and like you started to see soccer moms get tattooed yeah, for yeah, the yeah. first time that I was kind of on that initial crest of that wave. But now the tattoo community, the people that get tattoos, the people, you know, the clients or the clientele is much more informed than they ever were before. Mm -hmm. In the past, you had like a couple tattoo magazines, maybe a documentary here and there. Now there's this like endless amounts of information, endless amounts of visual stimulation for tattoo clients. Um, all, and it basically, you know, with with the internet, it just kind of exploded. And with like an app like Instagram, mm. it's really kind of like Instagram's like radio for the visually oriented. My friend Nick, is uh, a great great artist, had said that. And it really made a lot of sense. Like my business increased triple when when I got on Instagram, mm -hmm. you know, because I hadn't, I never really messed around with like Facebook or anything mm -hmm. like that. So when I got on there, it was just like, wow, I have access to all these people, and like you, you can like daily update what you're doing, and people are like into it. They want to see what you're doing. It's not like a not posting pictures of my lunch <laughs> and uh, you know yeah. selfies and Whatever, you know yeah. all that stuff but like it, it really works well for tattooing and you don't have to have like you know have to write missives for everything that you've done you know you can just kind of post a picture of what, I'd, what I've done today and like mm. I see that that it inspires people and it like kind of helps lead them towards what I do best and what I like to do so like it's easier to connect with people where mm. 10 years ago, you kind of had to sell yourself yeah. or like kind of convince people like this is what I can do, you know, yeah, and like yeah. and then not be too sure about it. But this is like a way where they can really kind of, yeah. you know, it's like having like a radio station. Yeah. yeah. So, again, it's kind of like the theme of this conversation, maybe in that in in it becoming such a, a mass movement or mass whatever, just getting more popular like you said there's you know soccer moms or whatever getting tattoos you know is the the core of the you know the authenticity or the history of it get, uh, getting lost at all do you think? yeah it gets completely mangled mm -hmm. you know but also like this thing like this thing like this tattoo tour um is a great example of like a response to that crazy we did kind of what uh, a musician's tour but for tattooers mm -hmm. you know we had rented a, a tour bus that was actually sick of it all's tour bus mm -hmm. two weeks prior <laughs> yeah. and uh, we did uh, 10 cities six countries in 13 days mm -hmm. and um, just like tattooed in a new shop each day with uh, 10 different tattooers mm -hmm. and some of like the the greatest most interesting tattooers in this country it's all American tattooers in Europe and the guy who put it together, Patrick, he's the one who does Reaper Records. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's like, it's his brainchild, and he's the probably the only person that really put it together because he has the background in like show booking and how that kind of world works, but also the how the tattoo world works. So he, he curated it with like the coolest people, best shops, mm -hmm. and it was just like highly energetic. It's like something I never had done before in tattooing. Like, it was like, uh, you know, like. It, it felt like a really good music tour, mm. but tattooing, yeah. you know, like uh, the response was really, really infectious. And like each city would be a little bit like a little bit more powerful and people would be a little bit more psyched. 
that Patrick set that up so we could bring the, the, the tattoos to the people. And he specifically curated it with tattoo artists that were probably the most authentic of their genres of tattooing yeah. or their styles of tattooing. And like we had Leo Zuleta with who was with us, who was like the first tribal tattooer mm -hmm. in America. He's like the guy that brought it to this country, you know, and like really made it like a popular thing. Like, and, uh, you know, it's just like people that have like definitely helped contribute to the look, overall look of and style of tattooing these days. A lot of the people on the tour were people that were part of that. Yeah, it was just a, it was a great way to spend some time with some people that I love and like really get inspired and do some cool work. Just like anything else, you know, like uh, the pendulum swings one way, it swings back. Like there's responses to like all the weird, you know, pop culture shit and like tattooing becoming like super, you know, like mainstream. And then there's like all these television shows yeah. and what we saw happen with punk kind of happened with tattooing that, you know, you, you definitely get some good punk bands when that happens. Yeah. You yeah. know, it's like, there's a reaction yeah, to that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So yeah. The, that that's also happening in tattooing now. Like, so the real, it, it kind of shines in a different way than a lot of this other bullshit. Yeah. Thanks for listening to our conversation with Robert Ryan. Give him a follow on Instagram under the handle Robert Ryan three two three, and check out Electric Tattoo if you're ever in Asbury Park. You can buy signed copies of all three of my books directly from me at sandpaperlullaby.bigcartel.com. And we are coming up on the 10th anniversary of my first book, Why Be Something That You're Not. And we are planning a few special episodes based around that. So keep your ears open. My producer is Elliot Muka. I am Tony Retman. And thanks again for listening to Sandpaper Lullaby. This episode is brought to you by Revelation Records. On April 10th, the band Drain releases their debut album entitled California Cursed. They're from Santa Cruz and they'll melt your face. As they say, Drain is your friend. New releases and reissues coming from Shook Ones of the Great Wet North, World Be Free featuring members of Terror, Strife, Youth of Today, and Chain of Strength, as well as Constant Elevation featuring Vinnie Carana from The Movie Life. You can check it out at revelationrecords.com or revhq.com. And as always, thank you for listening to Sandpaper Lullaby.